NASA celebrating Black Hole Week. Let's talk to an expert that can tell us about these very strange and mysterious objects. Hi, I'm Jim Green, and this is a new season of Gravity Assist. We're going to explore the inside workings of NASA in making these fabulous missions happen. I'm here with Dr. Jeremy Schnittman, and he is a research astrophysicist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. He joins us here on Black Hole Week, when NASA is celebrating that very strange and mysterious object we call black holes. Welcome, Jeremy, to Gravity Assist. Thanks, Jim. It's great to be here. Your NASA webpage states that you call yourself a general purpose astrophysicist theorist. What does that mean and what do you do? Well, I think maybe it'll help to, to describe to the audience first, what is an astrophysicist in the first place, right? It almost sounds like a made up job. Sometimes I think <laughs> it is, it's such a great job. Um, not to compare myself, but I, I think really the first astrophysicist that we know of it was Isaac Newton, right? He was an astrophysicist because he took the laws of physics that he could see on Earth, right? The famous one about the, the apple falling, he could measure gravity on Earth, and he applied it to the heavens, he applied it to astronomy. So that's how you get astrophysicists. You're taking what we know about physics from a laboratory or from theories that we've developed here on Earth and applying it to the entire universe. Uh, and so that's that's what I do. Uh, why do I call myself a general purpose astrophysicist? I guess it's because I'm not really an expert in anything, but you know, try to dabble a little bit in, in everything. Um, when it comes to black holes, they really are a great intersection of everything. You're right. Black holes requires all kinds of knowledge. So what got you really interested in the topic of black holes? I guess it started right, you know, right at the beginning of uh, graduate school. I mean, everybody, has, you know, we grew up learning about black holes a little bit in school, and everybody knows that they're really cool and mysterious objects. Uh, but when I got to graduate school, I started learning about, you know, what is what a black hole really is. What does it really mean to be a black hole? What does it really mean to to study black holes? What exactly is a black hole? Even among the experts, I, I think you could probably find a disagreement about whether a black hole is an object or is it just a part of space. Uh, it it obviously starts off as an object, it starts off, most of them we believe start off as massive stars that burn up all of their fuel uh, during their lifetime. When you have a star that's much bigger than the sun, uh, it, it burns the fuel much hotter and much faster. And after just a few million years, as opposed to the sun, which is billions of years old, after just a few million years, you're, you're, you're done with your fuel. So there's no more heat holding the sun up. And the gravity, there's still all the gravity. You just don't have that hot gas and, and pressure holding the, the star up. And the gravity is going to win, and it collapses into, into what we call a singularity, um, which is like a, just an, an explosion of, of density, of energy, of mass. We're not really quite sure. I personally just think of it as a, 
as a whole in space, right? They're a nice round hole uh, described by a lot of mathematical equations. You have this famous edge of the black hole we call the the event horizon, and that's really where nothing nothing can escape from, not light, not particles, nothing at all. So if we can't see them because the light is not allowed to leave this particular area, how do we really study them? There's this kind of irony of black holes that they're black and invisible, but they're also some of the brightest objects in the entire known universe. And the reason is because uh, when you tend to get too close to a black hole, if you're a planet or a star or a cloud of gas, you get whipped around into a really fast orbit going nearly the speed of light, heated up to millions of degrees and shining out in bright ultraviolet x-ray radio, uh, just really bright, bright um, sources of light coming from not the black hole itself, but from the effect that it has on, on anyone who gets too close to it. So that's why that's how we see them. That's how we study them for the most part. There are a couple other ways that you can study them, not through the, the material immediately around the black hole. Anything that is affected by gravity will be able to, to, to measure it and uh, use it kind of indirectly to infer the properties of the black hole. So if you see a star in the middle of space just moving around in a circle around nothing, that's a pretty good hint that there's something like a black hole right next to it. Well, how close can you get to a black hole before you fall in? I guess it depends on your rocket ship. <laughs> um, if you're just a you know a run-of-the-mill astronaut floating through space, you you really want to keep your distance. Um, you don't want to get anywhere within you know the strong strong gravitational pull of a, of a black hole. Maybe a, tens or twenties of times the uh, the black hole's radius. Uh, if you have a really good rocket where you can fire your retro rockets and you know kind of get down close and then pull away again, uh, you can get up to about twice the the black hole's radius, uh, what we call the short shield radius, and still escape if your rocket is you know can get you almost up to the speed of light. If you basically turn yourself into a photon going the speed of light, then you can get just up to the uh, event horizon, but you better turn yourself perfectly around and head straight out <laughs> again in the, before it's too late. Once you get past that, there's no return. Well, as you mentioned, some of these stars that produce supernova explosions are massive enough to become black holes. So we do see supernova. We see them in other galaxies and even our own galaxy. So how far away is our closest black hole? So uh, of, the, of the black holes that we've, we've seen and observed in our own galaxy in the Milky Way, uh, it's really not that many. But one in a thousand stars becomes a black hole at the end of its life. And if you think about the fact that we have over 100 billion stars in the Milky Way, you do the math and you end up with over 100 million black holes floating around the Milky Way. And we've seen 40 of them. So that leaves 99,999,000 and change 
that we've never even detected. And they're just going to be sprinkled throughout the, the Milky Way, just like all the stars. And again, you do a little bit of math, and the chances are that there is a black hole that we've never even seen within only, say, 25 light years of the Earth. Um, I mean, it doesn't pose any immediate risk, uh, but I tell you, when whenever it happened, you know, a billion years ago, when it went supernova, it would have been a pretty bright day out. Yeah, boy, no kidding. But if you had to bet, and you, you look up into the sky and you see a galaxy, I put pretty good money that there's a black hole in it. Okay. So are there tiny black holes? How small can a black hole be? Ah, uh, that's a good question. Um, since the only ones we really understand at all are these ones that come from collapsed stars. So those are kind of the smallest we've seen so far, but there's no real reason you can't form a smaller black hole. Um, there's a famous uh, effect uh, predicted by Stephen Hawking about, uh, well, appropriately enough, called Hawking radiation, where a black hole actually leaks out a little bit of, of radiation from the surface due to complicated quantum mechanical effects that I can't claim to understand. Uh, but we, we know that we've never actually seen this uh, in the lab or in space, but we know that if it exists, uh, the smaller the black hole, the brighter the radiation, uh, interestingly enough. So if you get too small, the black hole actually gives off a lot of radiation and then actually just evaporates and disappears in a in a big bang and flash of gamma rays. So uh, if you if you think about what how small can you be, it kind of is a question of how small can you be and still survive the Hawking radiation. It would be much, much smaller than the size of the Earth. And we haven't yet seen anything like that. But again, no reason they might not exist. So do more massive galaxies have more massive black holes, do you think? They do. Uh, there seems to be a pretty tight relationship as you get to be a bigger and bigger galaxy, or more specifically, a bigger and bigger bulge, right? Just that, that center region of, of stars, they get bigger and bigger. I mean, we think of 4 million times the size of the sun is mind-bogglingly huge. But by galaxy standards, it's a, you know, it's a drop in the bucket. We've seen black holes that are a billion times the size of the sun or even larger. Um, and, but, but kind of interestingly, as you get to the really big galaxies with the really big black holes, the, the actual density of stars in that center region seems to go down a little bit. Uh, it's what we call a, a core. It's almost like a blender has scoured out those middle regions of the galaxy. And, and that's kind of what we think happened, is that the two galaxies merge, and they each had a black hole. The black holes fall in towards the center of the galaxy. They start whipping around each other and just blend, you know, uh, mix master, throwing stars out left and right, and kind of clear out a little bubble in the center. And, and that's what we're seeing in some of these big galaxies. Well, sometimes those two will merge. So what happens when we have two black holes merge? So that is that is the biggest, brightest thing that ever happens in the universe. The, uh, the merger of two black holes when they 
they actually come together, give off something called gravitational waves. And th those gravitational waves have energy, just like electromagnetic waves or ocean waves or sound waves. The amount of energy that those things give off actually outshines the entire known universe, entire universe, just from one pair of black holes for that, you know, five seconds or even five hours, depending on the size, how long it's taking them, them to merge. Now, we can't see this because our eyes don't see gravitational waves. So it doesn't, it's not like a supernova where, you know, big, bright blast in the sky. It's more like a, a sound, a bang, than a flash in the sky. So only very, very recently were we able to make the ears on Earth that could hear this sound of the, of the gravitational waves, these ripples in the very fabric of reality that go propagating throughout the entire universe. Jeremy, what is LIGO and how did it make those spectacular measurements of gravitational waves? LIGO, the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, is uh, actually two different observatories in the United States. One is located in Louisiana and one is in, in Washington State. And it's been a, a, a big, massive project funded by the NSF. And there's a, another sister observatory called Virgo in Europe that's also uh, really leading the revolution in gravitational wave science. Gravitational waves are ripples in the fabric of space-time. And one of the important things is, is it's easy to picture ripples in space, right? Like a piece of fabric stretching and uh, shrinking. But it's also important to think of it as the, the ripples in time, right? So it, it actually changes the amount of time it takes for a, a laser beam or a, a, a particle of light to go a certain distance. So the way that LIGO measures this, it's very, really, really clever. It sends a, a race between two rays of light, and it kind of splits them with a mirror, and it sends one one way and one the other way, and bounces off another mirror, which is actually miles away down a long tube, bounces the light back to the starting line and sees which, which light got there first. And from that, you can tell which... Uh, you know, kind of which leg of the race was a tiny bit shorter or a tiny bit longer due to this gravitational wave. Um, and it, you know, it sounds very simple and straightforward, but at the end of the day, we're talking about uh, lights that's going over four kilometers and then four kilometers back. And the one, one ray of light is beating the other one by a, a fraction of the radius of a proton. Wow. So it is no small task. <laughs> Uh, from a technological point of view, to to run this race, but they did it, and uh, we've been reaping the benefits ever since. How excited were you, and what were you thinking about when you when you heard about these results? I mean, it was it was really cool. Um, I I sometimes think of it as um, you know when you have your when you have your first child, right? It's very exciting, but. You know, it's not a huge surprise. I mean, you you had nine months to to somewhat prepare for it. You know, it's coming, um, but still, when it when it finally happens, even though you've been working on it for for years in in cases, um, it's still just a a magical experience. And it's um, you know, as a physicist working in in black holes and gravitational waves, it 
it, it was also kind of, uh, you know, like telling us, oh, you guys, you were right all along. And, you know, who doesn't like to hear that? Well, you know, it really opens up a new horizon for us in terms of developing new telescopes or techniques to measure these gravitational waves. What are the particular new telescopes or upcoming observations that you're excited about? Yeah, so especially for the gravitational waves, when two black holes collide, they make gravitational waves. Um, but like a, a bell or a, or a tuning fork, right? Different size black holes make different types of waves. You either can get a really kind of short, high-pitched sound or a very long, deep ripple going through through space. So like we've been talking about, we have these two different types of black holes, the, the ones about the size of the sun or a few times the size of the sun. And those are the ones that uh, we've detected the gravitational waves from with LIGO, which are these giant lasers uh, on the surface of the earth. To get the supermassive black holes, the gravitational waves from those, they're going to be at a much lower frequency so to, to hear those, we actually need to build a detector in space. And that's one of the big projects that we here at NASA are working on called LISA, the Laser Interferometer Space Antenna. And uh, it's interesting that it's called an antenna as opposed to an observatory, right? Observatory, you think of kind of like a telescope. You point it at a star and you take a picture. An antenna is just going to be listening all the time to everything in space, and that's what we're going to use to hear these deep rumble uh, waves from merging supermassive black holes throughout the universe. So LISA is a fantastic European Space Agency project that NASA and several other agencies are really excited about. And it requires at least three spacecraft that look at each other with lasers do you think that's going to uh, really solve a lot of the next problems that we want to know about black holes? For sure. One of the, the biggest ones that we want to answer is, uh, like we were saying before, where do these supermassive ones come from? I mean, it would, it would be like if, if living on Earth, you know, we knew of you know, insects and dinosaurs and nothing else. Like, wh how is that even possible? But if you look at the fossil record, you can kind of piece them all together, all the missing links in between. And we hope that Lisa will help us uh, kind of dig through the fossil record in real time. Because, you know, one of the great things about astronomy is you look at things far away, you see what they were looking like a long time ago. So by looking at the entire universe, which Lisa will be able to do, you can see the evolution from really just a a short time after the Big Bang, all the way up to now. So you've been working on this, I don't know, at least a decade, maybe more. What's some of the most exciting results that have come out recently? So I, I think, hands down, the, the biggest recent discovery with, with black holes, I guess since the, the LIGO era hit in 2015, was this very famous release of the Event Horizon Telescope image where they took an actual picture of a black hole released uh, just about two years ago in, in April 2019 using this huge network of radio interferometers. Now, these are different interferometers than LIGO, um, but they're used to actually take a picture of a black hole. So they could zoom into this 
tiny, tiny, tiny space, millions of light years away, and actually see what the uh, what the black hole looks like. Again, it's not not the actual black hole. We're picturing the gas immediately around the black hole, but uh, for all intents and purposes, that's the same thing. And we're really excited about seeing where where we can go next with this type of technology. Out of all the unknowns about black holes, what's the one question that you, Jeremy, would like to be the one to answer? It's kind of obscure, but uh, one of the things that I, I actually made a prediction of in graduate school is that when you have two of these black holes orbiting around each other and getting closer and closer and merging into uh, a single black hole through gravitational waves, the the spins of the black hole kind of the way that they're oriented should be aligned in a in a very specific way so we haven't yet got enough data to prove that one way or another but hopefully within the next few years with something like ligo we'll be able to uh, identify this effect and maybe even prove an old prediction right so that would be exciting for me personally I don't know if anybody else would care, but oh, I think that's I fantastic. I would. I'll be on the lookout for that. That's wonderful. Well, you know, Jeremy, I always like to ask my guests to tell me what was that event or person, place, or thing that got them so excited about becoming the scientists they are today. Now, it's very appropriate today, in particular, that I call that event a gravity assist. So, Jeremy, what was your gravity assist? Yeah, I was I was thinking about that too, Jim. As you know, gravity assist is is the perfect uh, name for our discussion today because black holes are all about gravity. Uh, that being said, my you know my real foray into into physics and real physics research uh, had nothing to do with gravity. It was uh, when I was a high uh, a junior in high school. I got to do a, a summer research program. Very fortunate and privileged to have been able to, to participate in that. At the University of Rochester, they have a giant uh, laser lab where they use mega, megawatt, mega, megawatt lasers to, uh, to do nuclear fusion experiments. And I, you know, got to see firsthand what, what real physics research was, was like. It wasn't like homework. It was finding answers to problems that nobody had ever solved before and it was just uh captivating and um you know i never looked back from then on i just knew exactly that's this is what i wanted to do yeah that's fantastic well jeremy thanks so much for joining me in this fascinating discussion about black holes oh it was a pleasure i always love talking about space and i love talking about black holes thank you well, join me next time as we continue our journey to look under the hood at NASA and see how we do what we do. I'm Jim Green, and this is your Gravity Assist.